Here's a quote from an article at theconversation.com. Quote, Justin Trudeau's government has egg on its face after losing its bid for a two-year term on the United Nations Security Council. With his famous vow that Canada is back, Trudeau made winning a Security Council seat one of the benchmarks of his foreign policy. In the end, the bid garnered even fewer votes than Stephen Harper's losing effort in 2010. Just the beginning of an article uh, entitled, by the way, the UN Security Council. Actually, the world doesn't need more Canada. The author of that article is David Webster, a professor of history and global studies at Bishop's University in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Professor Webster, David, good morning. Good morning. It's good to have you with us. Uh, we talked a little bit uh, earlier about uh, uh, your appearance with us this morning, and I, I think what the reaction, it, I suppose, David, were you surprised uh, the reaction at the reaction here back home when the decision came that uh, Norway and Ireland had indeed campaigned harder and won the two uh, available seats, uh, Canada out of the running. The reaction back home across the Great White North, David, was, eh, who cares? <laughs> Did that surprise you? Um, no, no, that was that was the reaction. There was there was a strong reaction among certain circles, but you're speaking of the wider public, and I think you're you're absolutely correct on that. Um, once upon a time, Canadians were much more interested in foreign policy Agreed. and Canada's place in the world. That doesn't seem to be the case so much anymore. And over the past couple of decades, the um, the strong international engagement that Canada has prided itself on seems to have fallen by the wayside for um, for a number of reasons. And the result of that, perhaps unsurprisingly, is that Canadians are not strongly engaged as a public in whether Canada wins a seat on the Security Council or not. Interesting stuff. There's a couple of things to talk to you about uh, coming out of just that one remark, David, not the least of which is Canada's very ambiguous, on a good day, foreign policy. And and, and I suppose the apathy that was notable uh, amongst the voters of this country subsequent to the announcement from the UN was because I suppose it it's, it's an unflattering result, but I think because you mentioned over the last 20 years, we really have disengaged from the rest of the world. We're not the blue hat peacekeeper guys of Lester Pearson's era. Uh, and uh, in fact, we've, I think, fallen out of step in many ways, even on our obligation side. We know, Canadians know, come on, David, we know we don't spend what we're supposed to on our military, on our engagement with NATO and other international commitments, and we know this. So we're kind of okay with it, too, because it doesn't seem to be a big deal with the government, until, of course, it's time for uh, a gold star, which we were denied. We were denied the gold star, yes. Um but we were denied the gold star because the world didn't see Canada's actions matching up to Canada's rhetoric. Um, I like to talk about a diplomatic self-image. Canadians see themselves as highly engaged in United Nations peacekeeping. Yes. Um, highly engaged in uh, mediation around the world. Um, a, uh, a good ally, but also a good uh, donor of uh, um, development assistance to the uh, poorer countries in the world and so on. This is how Canadians see ourselves in the world, right? Yes. Um, but when you actually look at the record of Canada... It doesn't back up. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, the military spending. Um, I've done more research about the uh, the foreign aid side, and Canada is at historic lows. Uh, Justin Trudeau's government gives less than half of what his father's government gave in terms of percentage of Canada's economy going to uh, 
foreign development assistance. Interesting. And, uh, a mere fraction of what Lester Pearson, the former prime minister, promised to uh, to provide. Mm-hmm. So, from the point of view of many countries in uh, the global south, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and so on, um, Canada is not living up to its very impressive rhetoric. Um, you have a lot of big talk, but you don't have very much um, engagement backing it up. As they Whereas say, as they Norway, say, in, as they say in Alberta, David. <laughs> As they say in Alberta, all hat, no cattle. <laughs> and, uh, and <laughs> that would be the expression. Yeah. That's right. And, and but you were going to go on about our the the two the, countries that did win, uh, Norway and Ireland. Yeah. yeah. Well, in terms of uh, foreign development assistance, Norway is substantially ahead of Canada. Canada gives um, various measures, but about zero point two seven percent of its gross national income to uh, foreign development assistance. Norway gives over one percent. So if on proportional terms, four times what Canada gives almost. Right. Um, in terms of peacekeeping, Canada has fewer than 100 peacekeepers in the field, um, despite the fact that Canada boasts about having invented pe- peacekeeping under uh, Lester Pearson True. in the 1950s. Um, Ireland has taken part, um, they, uh, they say, in every single United Nations peacekeeping mission and has several hundred troops in the field working with the United Nations. So, when you stack up the actual numbers, the actual record of the two winning candidates against Canada's, um, our rhetoric may be stronger, but our actions are not as strong as those two. So it's no surprise that those two were able to uh, garner greater support. And, you know, the, the Trudeau government, uh, the, the lame excuse uh, for the, the, that uh, they offered up initially was, well, you know, we kind of came to the fight a little late. We were late to the party and, you know, we tried to play catch-up ball and we just never quite got there. Uh, the truth of the matter was, and you've done the work on this one, David, Canada was heavily campaigned against. Those two countries that beat us wanted to beat us. Well, they certainly wanted to, yes. Um, it's true that Canada started its effort later. Um, starting your campaign late doesn't necessarily mean you're going to lose. You can still catch up. Absolutely. Catch yeah. up. So, uh, there was, so, yeah, there, there's a strong campaign against Canada, not just uh, an international campaign, but, but a campaign from uh, um, Canadian non-governmental organizations, uh, Canadian civil society. Um, many Canadians oppose Canada's bid, and that's both people on the, uh, on the right and people on the left. You talk about criticisms so. from internationalist sectors of Canadian civil society. What do you mean by that term, David? Um. I would say that Canada's historical engagement with uh, most of the world has been driven by civil society, meaning Canadians working for non-governmental organizations in other countries or working for the United Nations or working for other international organizations overseas so that it's largely a citizen-driven engagement. So we call civil society the Canadians are working outside the government realm in uh, international affairs. Okay. So why would some of those, some of representatives or some Canadians involved in these NGO and other international organizations, David, have campaigned against Canada? It's a surprise, it's a shift, and it's a significant shift, and I think it's one of the reasons that Canada lost the bid. Why did they do it? The... uh, Canadians who are involved in human rights work look at Canada and don't see it promoting human rights internationally, whether that's with respect to a large country like China or with respect to smaller countries um, such as uh, 
Venezuela, for instance, um, they, or uh, Israel-Palestine situation. Those Canadians who are engaged in these international human rights issues see Canada largely as echoing United States foreign policy in many areas, as not acting as a strong voice for human rights in a way that Norway in particular has done. So you see uh, people involved in aid organizations, people involved in human rights organizations saying, actually, in terms of what we are trying to do in the world, we think that there's other countries that would do a better job than our country would. So they campaigned to uh, have other countries elected. And that's, and that's a real shift. We're in conversation with our guest from Bishop's University, David Webster, a professor of history and global affairs at Sherbrooke's Bishop's University, wrote a piece recently for theconversation.com entitled UN Security Council. Actually, the world doesn't need more Canada. And David, just before we broke for the news, we were talking about the fact that Trudeau uh, made this a real feather in my cap project for himself and his government. Uh, he was rebuked by the United Nations. And in fact, in in this round of voting for that two-year temporary seat on the Security Council, Canada actually received fewer votes than they did at our last attempt under the Harper government several years ago. That Did that surprise you? Did that outcome surprise you? No, it didn't. I think that's what particularly stung. Um, losing a seat is one thing. Losing by more than Stephen Harper to somebody like Justin Trudeau is a particular sting, I would think. You bet. Um, but it's not. A, but it's not a surprise because Canada usually has been elected every ten years or so to the Security Council, just as part of uh, the idea that it's Canada's turn. Mm-hmm. But the world doesn't think it's Canada's turn anymore. They didn't think so in 2010 when Stephen Harper made a bid, and coasting on the same reputation gathers fewer and fewer votes. So they didn't think so again this year in 2020 when Justin Trudeau made the same bid, and in fact fell short of Stephen Harper's uh, total. Uh, and, you know, uh, so the uh, reputation, the coasting doesn't work anymore. Exactly. And, and the charm offensive that was uh, supposed to be oh so um, over the top uh, didn't really matter a great deal either. So uh, in terms of the way the, the world evaluates us, we talked about this a bit before the news. And let's let's pursue that because there is a reason Canada lost. Uh, and and uh, it has to do with the well, the inflated opinion we have of ourselves in terms of how the world sees us versus how the world actually sees us. And there's quite a gap these days. There's a growing gap, absolutely. I mean, there's no question Justin Trudeau is very charming and very well-liked, but that does... The argument the world needs more Canada is not a convincing argument because the world doesn't feel it does. Mm-hmm. The world perhaps needs more of, of what Canada says it does, but it doesn't need more of what Canada actually does. And that's the gap. This is the rhetoric gap. We talk big, but we don't carry a stick. And I suppose that's, that comes back in part to what, because after the outcome of this vote, many Canadians, went, well, first of all, went, oh, uh, sort of mildly, I suppose, uh, surprised, uh, but not shocked. Uh, and then we take a look at what we do as a nation in terms of foreign policy. And you look at our engagement with the rest of the world, and it really has been uh, reducing at a very rapid rate over the last 10, 20 years, hasn't it? It has been reducing. Canada's diplomatic capacity is down. Canada's uh, aid record is down. Canada's spending on foreign affairs is down. Canada's peacekeeping contributions to United Nations Blue Helmet missions is down. In so many areas, Canada's down. The only thing that's up is Canadian rhetoric. 
And so what is uh, what is required? Do you think this is going to cause, I mean, we're right in the middle of a pandemic right now, David. So obviously uh, all of all of the uh, a lot of what we're going to do is is in the pending file. But do you do you think that this may cause a some kind of rethink? Certainly Canadians have noticed our lack of uh, certainly backbone in foreign policy matters and frankly lack of foreign policy at all on some issues. So is this going to cause the national government to do a, a foreign policy rethink? Do you think? I don't know, but I do think that more and more Canadians are calling for that, and I hope that the government will listen to them. Um, you have uh, think tanks in foreign policy, um, both on the uh, on the conservative side, the Macdonald Laurier Institute, right. and on the uh, more uh, left wing side, the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, both calling for a rethink of Canadian foreign policy. So when you're being called on from both left and right to rethink your foreign policy, it might be worth listening. And I think they should listen. There, there's definitely a rethink needed um, and a, uh, a reinvestment needed in these uh, engagement with the world. We are in a pandemic, yes, but the pandemic tells us more than ever that what happens outside our borders matters inside our borders. Yeah, good so point. To uh, reengage in that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you were to synthesize the information, okay, you're talking about the government being uh, criticized from both the left and the right in terms of foreign, a, a non-existent foreign policy. Now, can you look at where those both of those groups, and they're quite quite opposite politically or philosophically, yet they have this a common critique. So, what are the common denominators? Where do they both agree Canada is lacking and needs to redo its foreign policy outlook? I would say, number one, uh, human rights. Uh, there's a piece in the Globe and Mail today from uh, Jenny Byrne, who was uh, Stephen Harper's Stephen Harper, former sure. campaign director, yeah. so she knows what she's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, she spoke about Harper's principled foreign policy, and yet um, Harper's principled foreign policy on China saw Canada move closer than ever into alignment with China, and for the first time, Harper's foreign minister, John Baird, called China an ally of Canada. So the principled foreign policy under Stephen Harper was undercut by Canadian actions on the human rights front. Mm-hmm. That's um, a perspective from the more conservative side, from the more, uh, the more left side. You can see people talking about the arms sales to Saudi Arabia, and this is an, an aspect of continuity between Harper and uh, Trudeau, is that Canada agreed under the Harper government to sell weapons, uh, light-armored vehicles, um, on a massive scale to Saudi Arabia. Yes. That contract was continued under... Justin Trudeau, despite the Prime Minister saying, I don't want to do this, in fact, he is doing this. That's the rhetoric gap again. I don't want to, but somehow I'm being forced to sell weapons. Canada talks now about a feminist foreign policy, and yet in arming Saudi Arabia, it's actually aiding and abetting one of the most misogynist foreign policies in the world. So there's a common critique there on human rights grounds, with a focus perhaps on different parts of the world, but Canada should be advocating for human rights. Most Canadians believe that, and it doesn't really seem to be the case. Canada speaks about human rights, but doesn't put words behind, doesn't put actions behind those words. Interesting. Uh, a final so that's couple. Number one common. 
Yeah. Final comments from you, if you you don't mind. I'd like to come back to China. It's a big deal here in Vancouver. It's a big deal right across the country. But we happen to have Meng Wanzhou under house arrest uh, on the west side of town here. Right in town, Uh, yeah. Yeah, really, really sweating it out in a $15 million mansion, too. Tough, tough incarceration. (laughs) Nonetheless, uh, we are being played, many will say. We're we're the pawn in some kind of power game between Xi Jinping and Donald Trump. uh, we have had an opinion uh, f- uh, from uh, the courts this week. Uh, we've had a, a, some pressure brought to bear on the government by former judges and former diplomats uh, indicating we should do a prisoner swap. The prime minister dug in his heels and said, absolutely not. Uh, so, uh, And yet uh, you were talking about Harper uh, and some of his people describing uh, China 10 years ago as an ally. When is, when is somebody in Ottawa going to stand up and go, no, 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 this is our enemy. These people are Canada's enemies and need to be treated as such going forward. Well, I don't think Canada needs to treat China as an enemy. Um, we are caught in the middle, and it's unfortunate for a smaller country to be caught in that middle position. But I, I don't think we need to treat China as an enemy. We just need to treat China as another country, which with Canada has foreign relations with. We do not need to give in to and take part in hostage diplomacy. Right. Um, that was a bizarre intervention that uh, was made by, um, I mean, this is an open letter signed by former liberal cabinet ministers, former conservative cabinet ministers, the former leader of the NDP, the Canadian foreign policy establishment, yep. in, in short. Um, I'm not a big fan of Justin Trudeau's foreign policy, but he was absolutely right to stand up and say, no, we won't take part in uh, hostage swaps. Mm-hmm. That would simply encourage every, encourage every government that has... Uh, dubious human rights record around the world to try to make try to kidnap canadians and hold them hostage to get what they want so it's it's a bizarre policy but that is the policy the canadian foreign policy establishment and yes it's about freeing two canadians but it's also about saving canada's relationship with china and that's been so central canada's relationship with china though has been increasingly one that just gives China its way mm-hmm. um, and erodes the uh, international human rights system. I've written about uh, how in the 1990s, Canada and other countries get started to give China a pass on human rights when previously they've been advocating more for it. So we don't need to treat China as an enemy. We need to stand in support of those Chinese people who are campaigning for improved human rights in their own country and those uh, people around the world who are saying we don't want to let China be the new superpower pushing us around. Interesting so stuff. That suggests that Canada's relationship with China might look a little more like Canada's relationship with uh, other major countries around the world. Well, it'll be They're not adversarial, but not on our knees. Either. Yeah, exactly. It, it's tough to stand up to someone when you're spending most of your time bowing. Uh, David Webster, a pleasure to have you on the program this morning. I commend your article entitled "The." Uh, I'm sorry, I've, I've just lost it. Here is the UN Security Council. Actually, the world doesn't need more Canada. It's available. It's a good read at theconversation.com. And Professor Webster, we'll have you back, sir, if you don't mind, because we really very much enjoyed this conversation. Thanks very much for having me on. David Webster is a professor of history and global studies. He joined us this morning from Sherbrooke, Quebec, because he works at Bishop's University.
Uh, we have an announcement from the government of Canada this week that was uh, welcomed by lots of students who are in for a bit of a difficult summer. The Prime Minister announcing the I Want to Help platform as a package for further assistance for post-secondary students. Uh, according to the Prime Minister, students who volunteer this summer in the fight against COVID-19 will be eligible for anywhere from one to $5,000 through the Canada Student Service Grant, which was previously announced in April, and additionally, the Prime Minister at the same announcement says Canada will invest $40 million to create 5,000 MyTax internships for students. MyTax, he said, is a nonprofit organization that builds partnerships between industries and universities. We're going to find out a little bit more about MyTax these days. We are delighted to welcome the CEO and Scientific Director, John Hepburn, to our program. Mr. Hepburn, good morning and welcome. Uh, good morning, Sterling. It's a lovely morning, and thank you very much for your interest in what MyTax is doing. Well, it's great to have you with us, John. I appreciate it very much. Why don't you just to begin with, tell us uh, the, what MyTax is all about, please. Well, you, you handled it in your introduction. Um, we're a partnership organization. We're national. We're not-for-profit. Uh, we're supported quite generously by the federal government, as you said in your introduction, but mm-hmm. also by the B.C. government and all other provinces and uh, Yukon Territory, as well as industry. And so we create internships, research-based internships for students who work on research projects that are interesting simultaneously to the university researchers and solve an industrial problem. We're in the business of promoting innovation in Canada. How long have you been around, John? Oh, well, me personally, a long time. But, uh, I, I, <laughs> How about my tax? <laughs> well, my tax, is, my tax has been around for uh, just over 20 years. Okay. We started uh, right here in B.C. Uh, in 1999 and have grown rapidly ever since. So we're uh, just over 20 years old. Is, is it always been uh, as structured as it is today with the, the notion being to be that bridge between uh, the student world and uh, what lies beyond? Not for its entire history. MyTax was established, uh, the, the funny acronym is uh, Mathematics and inf- uh, Mathematics Information Technology and Complex Systems. And so it was an academic research network, uh, again, national. Um, but they started very early on in, in the history, we started, um, doing these student internships. And originally for uh, applied mathematics students, but uh, as as we evolved and grew. Uh, we cover all disciplines from humanities right on through to theoretical physics, I guess. How has MyTax been affected by COVID-19? Well, I mean, unlike a lot of unfortunate uh, companies that have, that have been negatively affected by COVID-19, we've, of course, had to go to uh, work from home and those sorts of things. But we're incredibly busy. And we're busy on two fronts. One is finding solutions for the current COVID-19 health crisis. The second is um, promoting innovation and growing innovation during the economic recovery that uh, we sure hope is going to follow soon. 
And uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the sorts of, uh, of work that uh, is being done. Uh, uh, obviously, you're working from home. Most of, my, most of my co-workers are also working from home. I'm one of the few people that comes into the actual radio station. It's been like that for months. So beyond the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. the, the, beyond the changing nature of our workplaces, John, let's talk about some of the innovation that has come about uh, specifically in because the, the government of Canada has been very forthcoming uh, since the get-go, since we realized. This, the kind of quandary we're in, uh, Mr. Trudeau and his associates have said, you know, we're ready for Canadian innovators. We have funding, we have energy and encouragement. So what's, uh, given that attitude, uh, what, what can you tell us about uh, so the, the projects that have, have sprung up uh, during this pandemic? Oh, boy, there's so many of them. Um, we launched very early on, uh, very shortly after we went into all of us uh, went home in mid-March. The end of March, we launched a special call for COVID-19 projects. And I believe you're speaking with uh, somebody from uh, Dialogue afterwards mm-hmm. about one of those projects. That's correct. Um, but we we expected, you know, sort of, well, maybe we get uh, 200 of these projects in. Um, we're now closing in on, on 1,200 internships. Uh, just based on COVID-19, essentially addressing the immediate crisis of COVID-19. And so the projects range from the sort of artificial intelligence application that that you'll talk about with Alex um, on through to uh, there was a company in uh, southwestern Ontario that was building, you know, sort of mobile, sustainable power supply units and shipping containers for remote communities. Ah. And one of our interns from uh, Western University said, hey, we could make these into just, I know how to do this. We can, we can make mobile clinics and shipping containers. Um, and so they're doing that. We have people working uh, together with Suncor on wastewater detection, and that's been in the news recently. Very much so. detect coronavirus through wastewater. You bet. And so, and then a, another company working on using algae to, to grow precursors for um, testing kits. So it's the whole, across the whole range from, you know, as I say, artificial intelligence on through to biomedical science and, you know, mechanical engineering. John, so it's, it's whatever can address this crisis. Right. Now, we know that Canadian students, a lot of them, post-secondary students, uh, typically take the summer months and get out there and uh, make a few bucks to help uh, offset the costs of next year's uh, round of post-secondary education. That's not going to happen for a lot of students. So, thus, uh, the government stepping in with the I Want to Help program, encouraging volunteering. So, we're talking about what, what some of the internships have produced so far, and it's a commendable list, John. My gosh, it's impressive. Uh, but now we're going to add in another uh, batch of student volunteers who will receive some acknowledgement, financial recognition for the uh, volunteer efforts in their communities. Pretty good idea, don't you think? Oh, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, it's it's a little different from what we do. But, sure. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we, we launched a program that's actually outside of our federal mandate uh, at the encouragement of our university partners to provide research internships, research research internships uh, for university students this summer as well. And we're going to have 2,000 of those this summer. So that's a little different from the volunteer program, but the same idea. Students who would otherwise, you know, be unemployed this summer are are going to be doing useful work. Right. And of course, we do have the Canada Student Service Grant, which will provide a, a modicum of income to uh, to a lot of students. There will be $1,200 a month or something like that. So there are some programs, this allowing for a little bit more opportunity to make a little bit more of, uh, out of what have 
otherwise would have been a pretty bleak summer, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think it's, um, you know, our our concern not is not just this summer, but it's it's going into the future where we don't want to, what we want to avoid at all costs is having a, a so-called lost generation of students who graduate into a terrible labor market right. and can't get the sort of high quality jobs. And so we're very focused now on creating opportunities that really take advantage of, of the qualifications these students have worked so hard to get uh, over their years at university and colleges. Uh, for those listening who want to learn more about uh, our guest's uh, company or, or outfit, organization, uh, you're, they're online at mytax.ca, M-I-T-A-C-S, mytax.ca. John Hepburn is the CEO and science uh, director of MyTax. Uh, sir, it's been a great pleasure having you on the program. Keep up the good work, John, and I'd like the opportunity to talk to you again as the summer progresses and see how this, uh, how this plays out. If you don't mind, we'll call you back. Oh, absolutely. Be very more than happy to talk. And again, thank you for your interest. Uh, it's great to get the word out. It is indeed. And it's such such a good program. And so many young people, as you say, uh, you know, the prospects are a little dim in the summer of 2020, John. And anything we can do to, to remind young people that, hey, uh, we're, we will get past this, there will be a future, uh, is probably a really good thing. You just spoke moments ago with John Hepburn from MyTax talking about the new program announced by the Government of Canada this week, another $40 million investment uh, in the uh, MyTax internships, 5,000 of them for students. And uh, our guest, uh, John Hepburn, referenced our next guest, as a matter of fact. It's always nice when one, one guest introduces another. So I'll just follow along and say good morning to Alexei Smirnov. Mr. Smirnov is co-founder and chief technology officer with Dialogue. Alexei, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Sterling. It's glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about Dialogue, and then we'll find out how uh, you and uh, the new program announced by the Prime Minister this week will merge. Tell us about your company, please. Yes. So Dialogue is a leading telemedicine provider that um, offers great health care to millions of employees uh, across the Canada. So we have thousands of employers or, as our customers who provide this benefit to employees and the members of their family. And the, what, uh, what the virtual care really does, it allows you to quickly speak to a doctor or a nurse, uh, whatever the case may be, uh, get the, the, the diagnostic, get the prescription, uh, have that prescription delivered to your door for free if you so desire. Right. And uh, get the follow-up uh, you need to, to make sure that you get better. So it's almost like having an entire wide-globe um, service clinic uh, in your palm of your hand on your phone. And this is a benefit that uh, you provide to companies who in turn provide that to their employees, correct? Absolutely. So that's, that's our core business. And uh, we're also providing that benefits through through uh, group insurance plans as well. Okay, so now let's connect the dots, Alexi, please. Let's talk about what you've done in this this program, this virtual healthcare for employees program, and how this connects with the new investment for students and young Canadians on behalf of the Government of Canada. Great. So let's imagine now Dialogue is uh, growing quickly, serving customers, and then COVID hits. So when that happens, uh, of course, the first instinct that we have is how do we uh, make Dialog part of the solution? How do we help 
all Canadians, not just Allied members, but all Canadians to get through this pandemic. Right. And so we very quickly uh, put together a technology. We've extracted some of the pieces of Dialog's um, our core product into a product that would be available to all Canadians. And that's the, how Chloe for COVID uh, was born. The uh, intent was to build uh, a, um, an information tool that would be available for all Canadians from coast to coast to get the information they need to really navigate this crisis. I have a friend, uh, a contributor to this program, as a matter of fact, who in fact was diagnosed with COVID-19, Alexi, virtually and uh, had to self-quarantine for 14 days and that whole thing. So as a result of this, again, necessity being the mother of invention, uh, you, you we are seeing uh, rising numbers of Canadians uh, navigating to virtual health connections. And it, it, it's uh, so where do, where do young Canadians come into the picture with respect to uh, their ability to contribute and also to earn a buck in the process? So as you can imagine, when there is a challenge like this uh, of creating a system that would be, uh, would be useful for all Canadians, you have to move fast and you have to have the best people on the job. Right. And so this is when we, we took, uh, we partnered with uh, Metox to, uh, to get to identify and recruit some of the best um, um, students with uh, artificial intelligence and software engineering background and put them together with Dialogue team as well as um, some other teams that, uh, that we've, uh, we've uh, brought together to really work very, very intensely and quickly together to build Chloe for COVID. And so as a result, um, the students and the experienced engineers work together to build a system that now has a range of capabilities. For example, just like you mentioned, the first thing is, um, is to figure out if you, uh, if you actually is on risk. So, so we have the system that allows people to assess their symptoms through, through a very simple user interface. If you know how to, how to text to a friend, you already know how to use Chloe. Okay. Then, uh, We've added more capabilities to the system based on uh, based on users' feedback or based on uh, what patients were saying. For example, uh, students helped us to put together a um, a test uh, navigation feature where, uh, when you need to get tested, you can see right on your phone where are the locations where you need to go to get tested. And then imagine that you are positive, uh, testing positive, you're showing symptoms. Chloe will strongly recommend you to be isolated. Sure. And then sign you up to a daily check-in. And so uh, she would get back to you every day. This is an automated system. Interesting. Get back to you every day to get your your system, uh, your symptoms uh, of that day, track them over time, and make sure that um, that it, everything's on track. And so, uh, imagine imagine the anxiety of somebody who is exhibiting symptoms. The last thing they want is to go to the hospital, but they are in fact getting worse. So, what do you do? Do you stay at home in isolation, or you, do you go to the hospital? You know, a lot of people need help to decide that. 
and uh, and certainly Chloe is part of that uh, part of that uh, solution. Sounds like a fascinating uh, system that you've developed, and it's wonderful that you're able to incorporate so many young Canadians, uh, allowing them to contribute and also to develop the all important resume credits that will do them so well in the future. It's great to have you on the program uh, this morning, Alexi. I'd like the opportunity to talk to you again as the summer goes along. Thanks for joining us this morning. Great to speak to you. Thank you, Sterling. Have a good day. You too. That is Alexi Smirnov, the co-founder and chief technology officer with Dialogue. You can find them at dialogue.co. Time to talk about something called ghost kitchens. They're also known as virtual kitchens. They have cropped up increasing numbers across the States and the UK in recent years, but have only recently started into the Canadian market. And they've been made possible by the rise of delivery apps, including Uber Eats and Skip the Dishes, and bolstered by the growth of consumer demand for convenience when it comes to food. Now, here in Vancouver, we've had the opportunity on this program to talk about ghost kitchens, although we didn't talk to them uh, uh, to Sarb as a ghost kitchen guy, we talked to him about as being a food hub guy. Sarb Mund is back with us. Mr. Mund is the founder and CEO of Commissary Connect. Sarb, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm great, thanks. So, what's the difference? We're just learning about ghost kitchens. It's a thing now. It was in the Globe and Mail and the Financial Post and so on and so forth. And uh, it seems to be a new thing here, but it's already a big deal and well established. So, what's the difference between what you do at the Food Hub versus what a ghost kitchen might do? Or, in fact, are they the same thing with a different name? Um, I'd have to say that they're very similar. Uh, the, the food hub, I mean, we spoke about it last time. It's, it's a little bit more established. I mean, they have more products that would typically get made for, uh, for the major retailers. Um, they would be more packaged goods. But with a ghost kitchen, you almost have a, a restaurant that's being used outside of hours. Um, it all of a sudden pops up on an Uber Eats or a, on, a, on a skip the dishes from a certain time to a certain time, and you're able to order directly from that from that restaurant essentially are restaurants without any seating interesting so that so do they is, is the reverse the case too that you could go to uh, a, for example an eatery sarb and sit down and order a meal and have it not cooked in the kitchen right behind you or where or near where you're sitting but in fact delivered from a central ghost kitchen to your table is that how it works well, it could. It could. I mean, there are a lot of uh, a lot of the chains, especially that will use a back end commissary. They'll use like a, a system like we have in place. So, in that respect, they would essentially have you know certain items that are harder to make at each individual location. Have them centrally, you know, made and then sent directly out, and they're typically reheated and, and served at each of these restaurants. Just kind of ah. keeps quality control. Um, you know, it, it, it adheres to all the food safety principles. I mean, it, it is a, a cleaner way of doing that that model. What we're starting to see now, though, especially with, you know, post-COVID, I suppose, um, are a lot of these young entrepreneurs saying, listen, I don't want to invest in a brick-and-mortar establishment. I just want to be able to just sell a product, whether it's from Uber Eats. A lot of them have their own apps now, um, and they would just sell the product directly to that end consumer. So if, if somebody wanted a meal prep service or something else like that, they would be using essentially a, a kitchen like ours or, or a ghost kitchen in that respect. Interesting. Now, how long has Commissary Connect been around, Sarb? You were uh, an innovator in this part of Canada. How, well, how long have you been around? Our first member uh, started in January of 2013. So, yeah, a good seven years. 
And what what's the busiest part of the operation? I know that you, you provide a food hub where people can come and use the generic kitchen that you provide those kitchen facilities and create whatever. Who are your biggest customers? Oh, we have a, we have a number. So we have different. We have sixty businesses operating in essentially, I would say, a little over twelve thousand square feet. So we are our core competency here is being as efficient as possible. Uh, that's that's of course made possible with some of our tech. So what we're able to do uh, is have as many companies in there as possible, being able to leverage off of each other's strengths. So helping them collate their purchasing together, helping them get their products out there. Uh, we're tying in with uh, with delivery services now, and essentially starting to create some of our own partnerships with our own delivery services being able to get products out there. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of space here. I mean, this is a a really new model. When we say it's a really new model, essentially what it is is people using kitchen spaces that are not, you know, essentially being utilized. Uh, The the, the change here now is a lot of the retail chains are starting to see that their kitchens are sitting empty, Um, especially when they're not having a lot of, um, a, a lot of, you know, seated customers. They're able to take care of this skip the dishes and Uber type model, which they weren't able to before. Before what would happen is you'd be sitting at a, at a restaurant and you'd be waiting for your food. But at the same time that that kitchen is pumping out your food uh, while you're sitting there, mm-hmm. they're also trying to get the orders ready for the delivery method. Yes. So that was really slowing down the model. So I think what we're starting to see now is our some of the efficiencies that are coming into place. What we're starting to see now is of course the need for a network of connecting these sites together, because I mean, who would want to, you know, hold the, the leases and the mortgages on the brick and mortar if all you want to do is make a product and try to sell it and try to push it out in different locations. Right. And you're the guy uh, with the brick and mortar that you can provide to others for, obviously, for a fee. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it, relative to paying the mortgage on a building, the fees to use the kitchen, I'm sure, are, are comparatively uh, easy to, easier to handle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Part of what we do also is we have a, a variable billing model. So if you're not using appliances, you're not using equipment, you don't pay for them. So, I mean, it really does help you kind of navigate the waters and keep your cash flow, uh, keep, your, keep your cash flow right, keep your cash flow in your pocket, I suppose. How about volumes during COVID? We've seen such a diminishment of activity around restaurants, especially the smaller ones. And, you know, they're, they're, they're fighting hard. A lot of them are, are just barely uh, head above water. And, you know, with a, maybe a little patio space, now we can get a couple of extra seats and get beyond the 50% capacity and maybe, maybe just make it. Uh, how has, how's business for you uh, in, in terms of accommodating uh, people in some pretty tough times in the restaurant biz? So we are, I would say over the last month or so, we've had record applications. So we're a record number of applications coming through. Wow. Um, Yeah, which is excellent. I mean, a lot of these people are still trying to understand the the model. I mean, a lot of them have probably been out of work for a while. They're trying to start something of their own, try to start something new. And we're kind of there to kind of be that guiding force of helping them, you know, make sure that they're doing the right thing and make sure that they're in the right places and their market and everything else is figured out. Um, But yeah, I mean, for the restaurants, this is a tough goal. I mean, this this is just still so much uncertainty do you uh, still provide kitchen space for some of the food truck people around town i know because they they don't typically uh, have a kitchen space they they have very limited space per, to provide the food they do from their trucks and and so a lot of a lot of the prep work takes place before they head out onto the streets do they do some of them use your facilities 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of them would start off at our facility, actually. So a lot of the food trucks, uh, I mean, they, they are still trying to make a go of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we're coming into the season now, right? I mean, so summer has started. This is, this is really where they're making their money. Um, so we're, our fingers are crossed able to do it. I mean, what we're, we're trying to be as, as relaxed as some of our um, expectations. I mean, where we would have signed people up for a, a year-long contract, we're saying, listen, I mean, it's really up to you. Let's, let's figure out what we can do to keep you guys going at this point. Right. And you talked... Uh, you talked. Sorry, you talked about uh, you only pay for what you need. But uh, the, I suppose the good part about that is, is whatever you need is going to be the latest uh, and newest model of whatever that uh, implement might be. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we're we're working with the Ministry of Agriculture. We work with a lot of stakeholders to make sure that we understand how this model is going to work. I mean, this ghost kitchen concept or this commissary concept. It is fairly new, I suppose you could say. I mean, it really did, re- you know, did, it did surge with the um, with the with the, the the apps, the meal delivery apps. What we're starting to see now is the efficiencies. How do we get these efficiencies? Instead of having kitchen after kitchen after kitchen run by restaurant owners, mm-hmm. uh, where the kitchens are typically smaller, how do we understand and get it? Instead of being in a retail, you know, where you're paying retail rents, how do we get into an industrial area where you're paying industrial rents still close enough to a to a uh, you know a highly populated, highly dense area, so we're able to get those deliveries out there as quickly as possible. We're, I mean, these are the, the parts of the efficiencies that, of the model that we're starting to see now. And where specifically is Commissary Connect? So we have three locations. Uh, we have two locations that are very close downtown. Um, so there are on Industrial Avenue. We have a, a, the third location, which is the Provincial Food Hub, uh, and that is on Laurel Street, which is uh, South Vancouver, uh, around Oak and Marine, around mm-hmm. that area there. Right. And then we have a couple. Now, what we're starting to see is a lot of other kitchen owners and all of the restaurant owners are, are starting to contact us and asking us whether we can put our technology into their sites and kind of connect them onto the grid too. Um, so, if you were looking for a commercial kitchen out in White Love, let's just say you just find the closest commissary, connect, and be able to go in there. You know, the billing is all connected the same way. So if you essentially had a location in, in White Rock and then you also wanted to set up a location in Vancouver or close to downtown, you'd be able to do that on the same billing system. So that this is, um, I mean, that essentially gets these companies to grow geographically without having to put a dollar in for capital for themselves. It's all about being flexible and being there when they need you, isn't it, sir? That's right, Sterling, it is. Commissary Connect, all one word, commissaryconnect.com for lots more information about this very interesting and energetic new service available. Well, not new, since they've been around for a few years, but let's just say growing fast service available to Vancouver restaurateurs and foodies alike. Sarp, great to have you back. Thanks for joining us again this morning. Thank you very much, Sterling. Have a great day. You too. Sarp Bund is the co-founder and the CEO of CommissaryConnect.com. If you go to vanaqua.org, the official website of the Vancouver Aquarium, up pops this enormous picture of one of those impossibly cute little otters with the caption, we've missed you in really large letters. They opened again yesterday. And here to talk about it is the CEO of OceanWise and the Vancouver Aquarium, Lasse Gustafson. Welcome back to the program, Lasse. Good morning. Thanks for having me again, starting. It's a beautiful morning, isn't it? It is indeed. It's not raining, and that's always A-OK by us. So the decision to open the Vancouver Aquarium yesterday, uh, you must have been enormously relieved to see people come back in through the front door again. Yeah, so yesterday was a great day for us. Vancouver Aquarium has been closed for 103 days. We even celebrated our 64th birthday without the public. That's very sad. So we're very happy to welcome people again. 
Now, I saw you on TV last night talking about some of the changes. And if you go to the website again, by the way, friends, one of the things that you can do uh, is uh, take a, a video, uh, watch a video so you know before you go uh, what your visiting experience will be like. Because, Lhasa, it will be a little different. You're, it, it's a little more, shall we say, organized. Let's put it that way. Yeah, so COVID isn't over and we will never compromise the safety and the health, not for our visitors, not for our staff, and of course not for our animals. Mm -hmm. So we are now offering a a very different, uh, and I would say a unique aquarium experience. It will be much more personal. There will be less running around, less roaming, and and less do it any way you like. You will buy your ticket online. That's important. We're trying to avoid crowds. Mm -hmm. And your ticket will be timed. You will have a slot of half an hour when you enter. And then you will follow a tour in the aquarium. Uh, uh, marks on the floor. Let's, I'm Swedish, so let's call it the IKEA way. Everybody okay. IKEA. You follow the. You end up in the coffee shop. <laughs> so it's a one flow experience, uh, and it's all, of course, to guarantee a safe and crowd free experience. What What you will get that you wouldn't otherwise is you have a you have the exhibit almost for yourself. There'll be very few people around you which is, of course, good for safety and health, but it's also good for your experience. You will engage with the exhibits much more in peace, much more close. Uh, so, yes, it's different. I would say for some of our visitors, it would be much improved. For some of the kids who want to run around and, and, and jump around, there'll be more rules to follow. Absolutely. I'm not at all surprised to hear that delicious Swedish accent referring to the IKEA approach to going through the Vancouver Aquarium. Swedes abroad call IKEA the embassy. That's where we go for the meatballs. Okay. So listen, let's talk a little bit about capacity. For example, now you mentioned that it will be a reduced number of visitors at any given time. What percentage compared to previously uh, numbers will you be allowing in the facility at any given time, Lasse? So initially, we are uh, operating on 20% capacity. Okay. If we would have had 5,000 visitors a normal day, we would we'd accept 1,000 visitors uh, now. I- initially, we will see how it works. Uh, we hope, of course, as, as, uh, that all the visitors will behave perfectly and this will be possible to, to step up and maybe have 30%, 40% capacity. But we're not taking any chances here initially. And uh, as to the guidelines that you are uh, working under uh, in terms of capacity and routing the visitors through the exhibits and, and the one way, follow the arrows on the floor and all of that sort of thing, uh, that plan uh, obviously has taken some time to put together. Uh, did it have to be approved by anyone, Lassa, before you were given the green light? Or were, they, were, were you just satisfied that based on the guidelines that you were referencing, your plan was uh, was A-OK? Because Vancouver Aquarium is the oldest and largest aquarium in Canada, we were asked to develop a COVID-19 plan for aquariums. That's been reviewed by the health authorities. They don't officially sign off, but they didn't have any complaints. So I think it's, it's fair to say, without holding anybody accountable, that the COVID-19 plan that we have produced uh, for the health authorities is a is a very good indication that we know what we're doing and we're not taking any risks. Interesting. Now, you said that this is a plan that you've developed here in Vancouver that could be equally applied mm-hmm. to other facilities across the country. What sort of feedback have you had from uh, uh, other aquariums in Canada with respect to the plans that you've come up with? Have they bothered to drop you an email and going, well done, we'll use it here too? We are... We are a part of something called the American Zeus Aquarium. Yes. It's with the 
top 10% when it comes to quality uh, of aquariums in the world. So, so we've always been at the front line with animal health, with safety, and, and with innovation. So we understand ourselves as, as leaders in the sector, and we have very good daily contacts with, with aquariums all across North America. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, buying tickets online, because that was one thing that you're very uh, upfront about. It's the same as the Vancouver Art Gallery and other institutions that we all love to tour and visit that have finally reopened. Uh, so uh, the mm-hmm. protocol is that uh, you must go to the website, purchase your ticket. And if you go to the website and, and you click on buy a ticket, the first thing that comes up is a calendar. When would you like to visit? And, and off you go. Uh, talk a little bit about um, the the need to avoid the ticket wicket at the front door. Yeah, so crowds is obviously, obviously something that you want to want to avoid. And by selling tickets online only, and by opening up a call center for those who have challenges, most people, of course, during those three months where we've been locked in lockdown, have done a lot of purchasing online. So it's 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 really easy and and, and practical. Uh, but there will be no tickets. Uh, at the gates and that's really because we want to make sure we have a flow from the parking into the aquarium people get going uh, and we keep our healthy distances to each other okay uh, but it's 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 really simple Okay, now I just uh, d- d- picked a random date. It would be July 9th. It was literally out of the blue, uh, just so I could get a screen. Adult uh, fees are $40. Kids go in for 23 Little kids go in for free, of course. Uh, and if you have an accessibility attendant, that person comes in for nothing as well. Uh, are these prices the same as they were before, Lasse? Yeah, they're exactly the same, actually. It looks different because we have a new system, ticketing system, and it includes the taxes, which is normal for Europeans, unusual in North America. So what the prices you'd see on the, on the, uh, on the website is what you pay uh, exactly. It's exactly the same price as we had before COVID-19. And so what, what sort of feedback? You said uh, yesterday was, re- was opening day, and I'm sure your staff was more than a little excited to see people come back through the building. And once the people had conducted their tours and had uh, revisited the aquarium, what sort of feedback were they giving you? Oh, a lot of people were very happy with your experience. And, and, and because this is new for all of us, I mean, it's new for us. We've never done aquariums this, this way before. We have a, a, a survey for everybody who leaves the aquarium is asked to fill in a survey so we can learn how, to, how can we improve, how can we do this even better. But there was a lot of happy faces yesterday. Uh, we also had a little opening ceremony where we were, we're in Stanley Park, as you know, it's the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, and they were there welcoming us back. We had the speakers from the federal government who uh, also made public that they've donated $2 million to the aquarium so we can continue going. So it was a really good day yesterday. I'll bet it was. Of course, today is is Saturday, so people have the time. So all all aquariums in North America have been open slowly, but we were... Recently, we weren't sold out, but there was a good a good crowd. You and I, many weeks ago, talked about the need for assistance from higher levels of government. Uh, how long? And, and at that time, I'm sure you were already in the business of lobbying the feds for some assistance. Must have been an enormous relief to hear that uh, there was going to be some assistance at that level. I, I'm new to Canada, as you know. I've been here less than a year and a half, and I've had a Canadian politic, politi- political crash course. I've spoken to more politicians those three months in Canada than I did five years when I lived in Spain. Ah. So, so of course, 
I've been wowed by the support, not only from the federal government, that's excellent, from the provincial government as well. But what really moves me is the $2 million donated by more than 14,000 individuals. Interesting. Not only in Canada, also from countries very far away, like Japan and Slovenia. So the massive support for the aquarium in the community. All right, Lassa, a reminder to our, our listeners, Vancouver Aquarium is open. Oh, and you must stay one sea lion from each other. That's two meters or six feet. Welcome back, Lassa. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.